So over this last week, we've been uh, reading through the book of Esther in our daily Bible readings. And if you haven't managed to read through the book this week, I would encourage you to read it at some point. It's a very good read. <laughs> and it might be worth just having a Bible open um, whilst we look at it this morning, as I will be jumping about through it a bit. Now, back when Matt asked me last June if I would speak on the book of Esther today, I was excited to say yes. I've always enjoyed reading through Esther's story, and the verse, for such a time as this, has stood out to me since we had a series of sermons on it as a church over 20 years ago. The book of Esther stands out from the other books in the Bible for several reasons. It is one of two books in the Bible to have a female title for the book and a female main character. It is unusual to have a female ca character at a time when women were second-rate citizens. Esther was the lowest in society. She was a woman in a patriarchal society. She was an orphan at a time when family meant stability. She was an exile of Jew living in a foreign country. The book is written as a self-contained story with a beginning, a middle and an end, which sits within the historical context of the people of the time, the Jews living in exile in Persia. Scholars think that the story of Esther took place around 480 BC, when many of the Jewish people were still living in exile. It was likely after the rebuilding of the temple by Zerubbabel, but before the return of the Jewish people under Ezra. Xerxes was king, and he ruled over the Persian Empire, which included Judah. It also included present-day West Pakistan and the Upper Nile region, including southern Egypt, Sudan, and northern Ethiopia. So it was a pretty large area. The story itself takes place in Susa, where the king lived. As shown in the story of Esther, King Xerxes had incredible wealth and luxury and seemingly absolute power compared to the people's poverty and powerlessness. The characters in the book are imperfect, normal people. It has goodies, Esther and Mordecai, who choose to act positively on behalf of their people, the Jews, and a baddie, Haman, the Agagite, who is also not a native of Persia. His greed and jealousy causes him to not only single out and try to kill Mordecai, but the whole Jewish people. Perhaps most significantly and unusually, God is never mentioned in the story by name. We know that Esther and her cousin Mordecai are Jews, but their relationship with God, or God's action in the story, is never explicitly mentioned. However, just because God's name isn't mentioned, it doesn't mean he wasn't at work. In this story, God's presence and actions are recognized by faith and not by sight. Esther is a book of God's salvation story. And it also sits within the bigger picture of God's enduring and ongoing action in history, his story, 
bringing creation back to himself. As we move to look at the story of Esther in a bit more detail, there are three areas that I would like to focus on. The first is that of the characters' actions, their human intervention in bringing about the course of events. The second is that of God's divine intervention in the story, God instances, not coincidences. The third is that of the significance of Esther's story in the grand narrative of the Bible, mirroring God's rescue story. If we start then by looking at the first area of the character's actions, their human intervention in bringing about the course of events. Let's focus first on Mordecai. Mordecai is first mentioned in Esther chapter 2 verses 5 to 7. So if we read it together. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. It was known publicly that Mordecai was a Jew. It says that Mordecai took Esther as his own daughter because she was an orphan. Mordecai's human intervention of adopting Esther brought her back into a family. Otherwise, in that society, she would have been destitute. We read of another action of Mordecai later in chapter 2. While sitting at the king's gate, Mordecai uncovers a plot by two of the king's officials to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai tells Esther about this, who in turn tells the king and gives the credit to Mordecai. This story seems a bit of a tangent to the main story. Mordecai could have bothered not to do anything about what he had heard, leaving it up to someone else to tell the king or to just let the events play out. At that time, Mordecai was not rewarded for this. But the king's life is saved, and the events are recorded in the book of the annals, or history book, in the presence of the king. In fact, rather than Mordecai being given any reward, the king honours Haman instead, in chapter 3, verse 1. The king elevates Haman, and gives him a set of honour higher than all the other nobles. The king even commands all the other royal officials to bow down and give Haman honour. Mordecai chooses not to bow down to Haman, and this causes Haman to become so angry that he looks for a way to not only kill Mordecai, but all of the Jews in Xerxes' kingdom. Haman asks the king to send out a decree across the whole kingdom, stating that on a certain date, the people are allowed to kill and destroy all the Jews, and the king agrees. 
Perhaps the most significant action of Mordecai is in chapter 4 after Haman has sent out this decree with the king's seal on planning the destruction of the Jews. It is Mordecai who challenges Esther, saying in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. In contrast with Mordecai, whose human actions had positive outcomes or effects, let's look at another character in the book of Esther, Zeresh. Zeresh is Haman's wife. We don't hear or find out much about Zeresh in the book but there is one action of hers in particular that is recorded and that has a large part to play in bringing about the course of events in the story. If we look at Esther chapter 5 verses 9 to 14 together. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet he gave, she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. It is Zeresh, along with Haman's friends, who encourage him to build a gallows or pole to hang Mordecai on. Zeresh could have been the voice of patience, of kindness, of being content with what you have, encouraging Haman to see and appreciate everything that he already had, rather than focusing on the one thing that was out of his grasp. Instead, however, she was a voice of greed, of you deserve more, of you can have it all no matter what the cost. So we have two different stories, two different characters in the story, Mordecai and Zeresh, with two very different ways of acting. Let's now move on to the second area to focus on, that of God's divine intervention in the story, the God instances rather than the coincidences. As I said earlier, God's name is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. 
It could just be read as a history book recording events. However, when we look at it more closely, God's fingerprints can be seen throughout the book. When reading through the book of Esther, one thing that stood out to me was the number of times the number seven is mentioned. Matt has shared with us before about the significance of numbers in the Bible and in the Israelite culture. The number seven often represents completeness, perfection, or divine fulfillment. In chapter 1, verse 5, the banquet that King Xerxes holds in the enclosed garden of the king's palace lasts for seven days. And in verse 9, we read that Queen Vashti also gave a banquet to the women at the same time. In chapter 1, verse 10, it says that on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring out Queen Vashti. And then when the queen refused to come out to him, we read in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that the king consults with the seven nobles of Persia who had special access to the king and were the highest in the kingdom. The king follows their advice to banish Vashti and to search instead for another woman to be queen instead. Mordecai's cousin Esther is one of the women who is taken to the king's palace. When Esther is taken into the harem to be prepared to be presented to the king, we read in chapter 2 verse 9 that she was assigned seven maids selected from the king's palace and she and the maids were moved into the best place in the harem. Esther's turn came to be presented to the king Xerxes and we read in chapter 2 that she won the king's favour and he chose her to become queen in place of Vashti. It says in verse 16 that this happened in the seventh year of the king's reign. Are all these sevens just a coincidence? Or is it little fingerprints running through the beginning of the story, showing us that even in this far-off land where God's people are in exile and a foreign king is in power, that God is still in control? Even at this stage where there is no death threat hanging over his people, God is at work bringing events into play so that Esther, an orphaned, exiled Jewish woman, could be brought into place as the queen of a foreign land for such a time as this. Another way that we see God's divine intervention in the story of Esther are in the seemingly unconnected or random events that come to have significance. I mentioned earlier about Mordecai uncovering a plot to kill the king and informing the king about it via Esther and that he received no recognition for this at the time. In chapter 6, the night before the king attends the second banquet that Esther has invited himself and Haman to, we read that Xerxes could not sleep. Maybe to help send him back to sleep, he calls for the book of the Chronicles detailing the history of his reign to be brought in and read to him. As part of this history, the account of how Mordecai exposed the two officials who were planning to kill the king is read out. This causes the king to ask what was done to reward Mordecai, and the answer comes back that nothing was done. 
We see God intervening in the dreams of a foreign king who does not know him, causing him to wake up in the night. We don't know why Mordecai wasn't honoured at the time, but it works out as part of God's plan that it was delayed for such a time as this. Haman just happened to be at the king's court at just the point the king was thinking about how to honour Mordecai. In chapter 6, verse 4 onwards, we see the king asking Haman what should be done to someone the king wants to honour. Haman gives a long list of how such a person should be treated and shown off to the people as he believes the king is thinking it must be about him. Haman then has to do this for Mordecai, the Jew. A Jew, a foreigner, who is then given a prominent position in Susa, in the Persian Empire. When the king finds out that Esther is a Jew, and it was Haman who plotted to annihilate her and her people, he has Haman killed on the gallows or pole that he had had built for Mordecai. The gallows that Zeresh, his wife, had encouraged him to build. Again, was it just coincident that Haman was in the king's court at the point the king was asking for someone? So why is the book of Esther included in the Bible? Let's look at the third area, the significance of Esther's story in the grand narrative of the Bible, mirroring God's rescue story. From the beginning of the Bible in Genesis to the end in Revelation, we see God's intervention in human lives, his acting in history, his story, to bring about reconciliation of relationship with him. When Mordecai urges Esther to go to King Xerxes and beg for mercy for her people in chapter 4, he is asking her to risk her life. There is great cost, great risk to her. Let's read together chapter 4, verses 10 to 17. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king. 
even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all Esther's instructions. There was a cost to Esther, the risk she could lose her life. But the cost was worth it, the salvation of her people. Esther is willing to take this risk of death and go to the king without invitation. Yet prior to this, she herself and all the Jews spend three days fasting. We read in chapter 5, verse 1, that on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and went to see the king. The king spared her life and held out the gold scepter to her. He asked her what she wanted and she eventually told him of Haman's plot to kill the king, to kill the Jews. The great rescue then comes into play where Mordecai, in his new position of power, makes a different decree which says the Jews are able to defend themselves when they are attacked. There is great rejoicing among the Jewish people as hopelessness and fear turn to joy and hope. The rescue story in Esther is the rescue story of God. It reminds us of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus was willing to lay down his life for us. He spent three days in the grave after being hung on a pole, and then he rose on the third day, bringing salvation for all humanity. The rescue story in Esther can lead us to look and see the rescue story of Jesus acting in history to redeem and rescue his people. And this is not limited to the Bible. This includes us today. God is still rescuing people today. He is still the same God working in history to bring people to him. Just as the story of Esther can point us to Jesus and show us God's intervention in history, so our story can speak and encourage and draw others to Jesus. Whilst preparing this sermon, I've regularly had the verse from Revelation 12, verse 11 in my head that Matt Hebditch spoke on during the church holiday last year. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Our stories have significance. There is power in telling them because they point to Jesus and tell of what he has done in our lives, but also because they are one of the weapons in overcoming the enemy. When we speak out the truth of what God has done in our lives, the enemy is defeated. I'd like to share with you something of mum's story over the last few months of her life. As many of you know, mum was in hospital over Christmas and New Year. On the 30th of December, Anna sent me a message saying that while she was praying for mum, she saw a picture of Jesus laying out a really luxurious, long red carpet before her. As mum travelled down this red carpet, Jesus walked at her feet. 
Waiting ahead of her, standing at the sides of the carpet, were doctors and various other people who Jesus will bring in when the time was right. Anna sensed God saying that we didn't need to worry or know how mum would get what she needs later. As she travels down this carpet, Jesus already has the right people in place. There was also a sense of joy around mum as each person saw her and as she moved along. There was warmth and a sense of welcoming. She was not alone and loved from all sides. When mum wasn't improving physically and the decision was made for her to come home with a hoist, we'd hoped that dad would be able to be the second carer and the hospital occupational therapist had trained him ready for this. On the 11th of January, we found out that this would not be possible and instead mum had to wait for a care package to be available for two carers four times a day. I knew from experience that this could take months as it was such a large care package. I was so frustrated and disappointed. Both Lucy, my sister-in-law, and I saw rainbows in the sky that day. Later that day, Dad sent me a message. Mum comes home tomorrow. Mum came home the next day with a four times a day package with two carers. This meant that dad didn't have to be the second carer and also meant that the carers came at set times so dad could plan his day around their visits rather than not knowing when they would turn up. The carers who came were each so caring. They saw mum and they took the time to speak to her and to get to know her. One carer who had gone to Sunday school as a child looked up some of the old Sunday school choruses and sang them to mum. When she got home from hospital, mum had a visit from the Discharge to Assess team. The man carrying out the assessment said, the stars must have aligned for you, when he realised how quickly the care package had come up. Around a week after coming home, mum started getting horrible spasms in her left arm. On the Saturday, our family called in to see mum and dad for half an hour in the morning. Soon after we arrived, mum said she didn't feel well and had a strange vacant episode. Straight after this, the doorbell rang. It was the district nurse. It was the first time they'd come to the home and she'd come about something completely different, but was able to look after mum and call the out-of-hours doctor for us. On the Monday, mum was still having lots of really painful spasms, but also wasn't eating much. Dad went to the doctor's surgery to ask for a home visit. Before the doctor came out, dad and I had a talk with mum, and she was really clear that she did not want to go to hospital again, and was for end-of-life care or terminal care now. The doctor who came out was understanding and made a referral onto the hospice. We had a call from the hospice nurse who said they would be out in two to three weeks. This felt too long. The following day, Dad had a call to say the hospice nurse could come out on Friday that week. The next week, Mum's skin was starting to get a bit sore, so we rang to request the district nurses come out to check. When the nurse arrived, it was the same one who had come out previously 
She was so caring and thorough. In conversation, it also came out that she was a Christian too. She was mum's main nurse and was able to oversee mum's care. We knew that mum didn't have very long left and so contacted her best friend from university who lives in the Lake District. She and her husband were able to visit for a few days and shared mum's last main meal with her before she stopped eating. Mum was finding it increasingly difficult to take her medication. On Monday the 13th of February, Dad and I had a chat with Mum about having a syringe driver set up so she wouldn't need to take her medication orally. She agreed to this and we contacted the district nurses to arrange this. Over the next few days, Dad had to call the district nurses out lots of times to help get Mum's pain under control. On the Tuesday evening, Mum was in awful pain. I wasn't able to be there with them, but Ronnie Sims, a nurse, had already planned to visit them that evening and stayed with them until the pain was under control. Even Mum's last weeks, many friends and family visited to spend time with Mum. Dad, Ollie and I had the privilege of spending her last evening with her. Although Mum's last weeks were difficult and painful, Anna's picture really did come true. God provided the right people to be there at the right time. Even in the pain, there was love, there was joy and there was laughter. Just as in the story of Esther, each person in mum's story had a role to play. Each person was significant. No one person had to do it all. They just had to play their unique, God-given part in the story. And each person has a choice, like Esther or Mordecai to choose to be a part of God's redemption story, bringing life and hope. Or, like Haman and Zeresh, to choose to work against God's purposes and bring destruction and death. Again, when we look at the story of Esther and see the significance of timings, people being in particular places, things happening, all for such a time as this. It does not feel like a coincidence that all those months ago, this was the Sunday chosen for the sermon to be on the book of Esther. What is God wanting to say to us individually and collectively today for such a time as this?